Hello, welcome to the Rethink Energy Weekly podcast. We're going to talk about our, our issue this week a, a bit, but also um, because we, we, we're planning a, um, a webinar on global gas prices, I think we should just have a little um, chat about gas pricing. For those who are not based in the UK, the UK are sort of panicked and, and claims that they're going to get into an inflationary spiral just because gas prices are going up so rapidly uh, and they have to buy their gas on the global market like everybody else because of more than 50%, something close to 60% of UK gas is imported and 85% of British homes use it for uh, central heating. In our neck of the woods, gas global gas pricing has, has led to a real issue and of course it's the government's fault, which it isn't. I just just wanted to go through some uh, some ideas on that. I mean, Harry, what what do you think gas pricing? If global gas prices are, are peaking now, is that because is this all demand driven? Are we stuck with gas for a much much longer, or is this its dying um, its sort of last rights as it as it goes out of business? Yeah, it's it's an interesting comment, um, an interesting question. Um, I think it's interesting that you say you can't blame governments, but I think if you focus on it as a supply issue, the reason that we're so dependent on natural gas, I mean, 60% of gas in the UK in particular is imported, and the fact that we're so reliant on it for such core uh, aspects of our economy, I think really does show that it probably is the government's fault. Um, Maybe not in the sense of the era in which we built this gas reliance, but certainly uh, a gas-heavy economy is something that is caused by government and therefore is something that a government has to take ownership for. Well, this goes um, back to the 70s when we discovered North Sea gas. And because of North Sea gas, we thought it was free energy. For various political parties, both sides of the fence, used it as a kind of premium to win votes by. And everyone installed it like crazy. Uh, we we weren't an importer of gas. Slowly, as those fields uh, were de- depleted, we've started to import gas from Europe. Some of that gas is now coming, or rather it comes to a Europe that's enriched by Russian gas. And then some of it is uh, comes across the ocean from America. Uh, and some of it just directly from Qatar. So um, it, it, it's a slow build up over a 30 or 40 year period that began in the mid 70s. So it's which government do you blame? All of them? The government's become sort of increasingly accountable for holding this reliance on gas. And I think the fact that we are so reliant on imports now uh, is itself a problem. I mean, we're in the situation where we're sort of in the queue for gas. And that's why we've seen prices really rise this week, because we're seeing such a high demand from Asia, especially for liquid natural gas from Russian um from Russian shipments, which means that the prices have just really gone through the roof. Um, these parties in Asia are unhappier to pay a lot more because the costs of their manufacture of other sort of sides that their supply chain are much cheaper. So they can sort of fork out slightly more for the natural gas that they're using. Obviously, because of that, prices are rising here. Uh, and I mean, moving forward, you can't really expect that this sort of industrial activity in Asia is going to decrease. So, uh, and if anything, the natural the natural gas demand over there is going to increase. So prices here, if we're not going to exploit any new natural gas resources, which we really aren't seeing in Europe at the moment, if we're not going to um, improve any gas fields, which obviously we shouldn't be doing, then prices are going to continue to go up and natural gas will continue to become a burden. On The UK um, media, though, is ablaze with people saying, don't write off fossil fuels, let's get back into digging them up from under the sea. You know, it doesn't take long for the the right wing press to suddenly come out with all these pro fossil fuel messages. And if that could turn a government's head, it would be a disaster. 
Well, why doesn't uh, 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 why don't other European countries like France, Germany, Italy and so on uh, not have the same problem? Well, they, they do have the same problem to a different extent. So um, certainly gas turbines are used to generate electricity in Germany um, and, and they've been replacing um, uh, coal turbines. But primarily, um, they don't have 85 percent of their heating requirements. Uh, relying on natural gas, uh, they have slightly less delivery of mains. Not not a lot less. I mean, I, I can't remember the numbers for Germany, but it's something like 60% of their home heat is delivered that way. France, on the other hand, have this um, long-term marriage to um, nuclear power, which um, so that there's a bit more electric heat uh, used in France, um, mostly driven by that abundance of nuclear power. So, I mean, everyone's got a different history. And and yeah, they are the collective um, decisions of prior governments. But I mean, here's one for you. This week, uh, China is rationing its electricity. <laughs> and, and why is it rationing its electricity? I read an article this morning about it that did not mention gas. So the prices of coal is going up. The, the policy in China is we have to produce 50% of all the coal we use. We're not going to go out there. They've got a, a, a bit of a trade war going on with Australia, won't buy coal from Australia. But the truth is that coal is cheaper than gas. So there's a lot of gas electricity generation by gas. But they're not going to pay the current gas prices when coal is cheaper and they're not going to pay the current coal prices. They want to dig more out of their own ground. Um, so they're increasing their fracking uh, and they're just having rolling power cuts. Apparently, it's the first time in quite a while that they've used these uh, orderly electricity use orders. Well, I Might think be. it's the government just saying, I mean, so it's, it's all part of what they're calling the dual control policy, which is if you have high consumption of electricity and you have high emissions um, you're the one that's going to get it in the neck first as an industry but if you also happen to um, be on the same network as all the people that live there they get it as well. Rethink Energy is all about renewables and all we've been talking about are fossil fuels for the last 10 minutes. Because they are the enemy and they need to die. <laughs> but, you know, but why, why I mean and, and I think Harry touched on this is if we'd invested in renewables sooner, we'd have more energy to play with from renewables. And so it is a government issue. It's repeated governments repeatedly failing to deliver at scale. How, how common do you think this kind of issue of supply and demand with, with fossil fuels will be? Because this is a very unusual um, economic situation that we're in, like um, th that Manchurian region of China. Its energy demand has gone up 9% in the course of the year, for example. I think we're going to hit this repeatedly over the next, um, probably only 10 years. I think, you know, coal disappears within 10 years. I mean, entirely. You know, such such it's on such a downward curve that, of course, there's this, you know, well, there is only, uh, they, there is less supply needed. But as sources of supply that are less economic go bust, then other sources of supply uh, experience higher demand for their source. Uh, and it, I think we'll see um, a kind of sine wave pricing on coal, on gas and on oil for, for, for the same reasons. That if, if the, end, the end 
customers are reducing their reliance on those fossil fuels. As sources of them close down, the least economic close down, the more economic are in higher demand. And it, and it just flip-flops all the time. You've, you've also got to remember that natural gas is a financial product. Um, and that's why you suddenly see these, these uh, cycles of pricing. Yeah, and we've got that. I mean, we've got to mention oil, of course, well, oil, gas and coal are all at big highs, uh, perhaps not going back 20, 30 years, some of them, but but um, they're all at very high prices compared to where we expect them to end up. Let's let's go on to. Um, so that's another thing that affects um, the oil is um, in our first story this week, I, I wrote something about Ford's numbers, but also Ford um, did some more deals, built two new uh, electric vehicle plants in Tennessee. In fact, they bought th- built three plants, if you count a third somewhere else, spending $11.4 billion. And, and they did a, a deal with Redwood Materials for recycling batteries. So they're going to build a lot more batteries. Um, some ludicrous number. I mean, let me just remind myself, it was something like 124 gigawatt hours of battery uh, per annum. And they've done that in partnership with uh, the Korean firm, SK Innovation. So I don't, we don't know the financial split on that. This is definitely an acceleration by Ford of its EVs. And there's a reason for it. It's sold them. It's, out, it's just sold every EV it can build. I mean, that's what's been going on in the background. Everyone's been commenting on it. They got rave reviews for the um, uh, the Mustang, um, and they've got rave reviews for their um, 150e, um, the Mackie, and and the the um, F150 Lightning. F150 Lightning. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and, and they as a result, they 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 either have orders which they'll fulfil next year, or they or they have actual sales. Um, not just here. I mean, it, it, you know, the the Mackie is going on sale in China now, and it's selling across Europe. They can't make enough of these. They are winning the war with with some products that that you know that this is a community dominated by Tesla lovers, and and suddenly people that aren't Tesla lovers are buying EBs. Uh, not just in America, America, Europe, and China. So that they they've suddenly got the confidence to come out with these statements, and and that they, I mean, that's the thing. I can as, as recently as April, they said, oh, it's going to be a terrible year. We can't get the components, uh, semiconductors. We're probably going to fall in production, and we'll only do, build half as many cars as last year. And already. They've turned around from that situation, uh, made a profit for Q2, and you know just can't make enough cars to sell them as long as they're EVs. A company that was reticent only a year ago to go into EVs and was kind of drag kicking and screaming by the European law changes. This accelerates the adoption of EVs globally. This type of, of behaviour, and we're going to see more and more like this. And we've got a new forecast coming out um, end of the end of October which is going to show that um, whereas our original forecast was 1.5 billion uh, electric vehicles by 2050, it's going to be significantly higher than that number. And this is this is changing policy and changing decisions and evidence, which is gathering momentum. I mean, across Europe at the moment, uh, electric vehicles have gone from being you know, 11 or 12 percent of the total mix to being 20 or 24 percent, depending on which country you pick. And that's 
that's a, a leap which the only company forecasting that kind of leap was us and even we've underestimated it um what else were we going to cover today i think um uh, we well, and to... Reese, what about the solar, the Rethink Energy solar counts? Oh, yeah. So so we did the uh, quarter two uh, solar statistics in some leading markets and, and used them uh, to estimate the global um, amount of solar that was installed in, in quarter two um, at, at 31 gigawatts. But that, that's based off the 19 or so markets that usually make up about 85 percent of installations. So France actually is, is remarkable. They, they've installed 1.3 gigawatts so far this year. Or 1.4, and and that means they're about half as big a market as Germany, I think. So so France is a reawakened one of these Western European markets that's come back alive, like Spain did a couple of years ago, uh, and Italy doubled its uh, installations over a quarter. So we've got some European growth going on there. Um, Japan is remarkably weak, actually. Uh, I couldn't find really updated figures on a like a monthly basis. But um, the, their solar associations is predicting sort of gloom, total gloom for the next few years. Um, well, we saw it during the Olympics, mm. the, the the effect of COVID in Japan. It's probably down to that. I mean, I think COVID affects home installations more than anything else. And Japan is mostly uh, rooftop installations. Yeah, it's uh, a densely populated. It's old and it's uh, almost all rooftops. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that coming back, but as long as they retain their feeding tariff, I mean, it's, it's I think that's pandemic based. They've been really consistent. When you map it over, say, 20 quarters, it's a straight line. You just got an incredibly consistent line. And of course, until coronavirus and, and, and when, it, when it kind of fell off. I mean, the, um, the photovoltaic association actually says, oh, it'll decline until 20 25 and then it'll stagnate until 2028 i think that's not really true but they, they are very pessimistic um what else is going on let's see so uh, has there been any word from china because i'm looking at the graph um from last year and that huge quarter of uh, solar installations in q4 2020 mm. and it was all down to china was that not the case so where's where are the chinese installations now I think a lot of them are going to be in Q4 again this year in China, especially. But the question there is how much the polysilicon price will affect them. And I think right. the last thing I saw was that polysilicon had gone um, all the way up to 250 yuan per um, kilogram, which is about, I think it's $37 or something. So it's gone up again by like another 10 or 20 percent. So. Yeah. I, it's hard to predict. It's a very unusual situation. I don't think we've seen it at that price for at least a decade or, or, or so. It, it, it's every time it goes up by 10 or 20 percent, that's another few percent for an overall project cost, especially at the utility scale. Uh, but what, what, what we did see in, in China this quarter was there's actually a map in the article where it shows how installations have shifted into the, the coastal provinces. And, and that's because of all this uh, rooftop a domestic rooftop promotion that's going on so which is quite a new thing for china they, they used to only have a very small rooftop segment i don't think there's anything too crazy going on that i could mention um but even so those first two quarters for china are higher than last year oh yes yeah um, and, and and you know we we've had a problem in uh with china uh, um in the first two quarters for the last three years it suddenly it fell off and um and and it's starting to be fairly assured it, it, regardless of time of year i mean and it'll, it'll end up 10 or 15 percent higher than it did last year 
despite yeah. polysilicon prices? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it would have ended a lot higher without polysilicon prices. And, and, and everyone's predicting that, that that scarcity goes away in the, the first quarter of 2022. Is that right, Andres? Well, not quite everyone, but that's what I think will happen. I think it'll ease up a lot because there'll be new polysilicon production online by then. It also will be quarter one instead of quarter four. So by the next time you have a lot of the later year, year's demand in 2022, you'll have even more coming along. Uh, and it, if you have this um, political situation in, in Zingyang, sort of polysilicon, hmm. uh, where nobody will take it because it's sort of tainted, they'll just use more of it at home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think um, they can use the Xinjiang polysilicon for just themselves and friendly markets. And then uh, they can use the stuff they produce in the other provinces for uh, the uh, the West. Yeah, it's not like China to actually um, consider changing their policy on human rights issues because someone else speaks up. OK, we, we should talk about the German election. Is it going to change the direction of not just Germany, but Europe? And Harry, you wrote about this, um, uh, you know, if the Greens have more power. Yeah, so I mean, obviously the general election was on uh, Sunday, uh, and while I think the whole point we're making is that while the Greens didn't get the result they wanted, obviously they didn't win the election, and there were people that thought that they could, they actually have ended up in a pretty good position. I mean, they're pretty much guaranteed to end up as part of a ruling coalition, them and the FDP, which is sort of a pro-business party, which also actually received quite a lot of support from young voters in, in the election. Essentially, you've got this split between the SPD and the CDU, which has previously been Angela Merkel's party, um, who have sort of for years really been running as sort of the two leading parties as part of a coalition. But they've really identified the need for change. And within the energy sector, firmly on board with that, we definitely need some change from Germany. We need to see them certainly accelerating things like their coal phase out, which currently is scheduled for 2038 way beyond what other um, European countries are saying. Uh, so they're going to form a new coalition and it's and it'll be interesting. So the debate now is whether or not you go for the Greens and the FDP with the CDU, obviously the, the previous party, or the SDP, uh, SPD, which actually received more votes in the election. Uh, and they've, they've named those the uh, the traffic light coalition and the Jamaica coalition due to um, the, their colours. It's just going to be interesting to see in these coalition negotiations, who can offer the Greens the best deal in terms of their climate change and their energy negotiations? Uh, I mean, the Greens are looking for a net zero by 2040, for example, ahead of 2045, which the other party is saying. Things like 100% renewable power by 2035, a coal phase up by 2030, um, and yeah, really accelerating onshore wind, uh, so solar and offshore wind. I mean, onshore wind in particular is something that Germany's really struggled with. Uh, similar to how we found it in the UK with nimbyism and not being able to install wind turbines within a certain distance from buildings. They've also got they want other policies. They want uh, no ice vehicles from 2030. Uh, they want to implement a minimum carbon price of 60 euros per ton, uh, which would be fantastic. I mean, it's it would be. I mean, that's pretty much where we're sitting at the moment. And to say that the carbon price isn't going to dip below that would be really valuable. Um, they've, they've got more controversial policies as well, which I, I think they struggle to squeeze past. I think they, they want to stop Nord Stream 2 from ever really going into operation, which is something that they'll struggle to enforce now that it's actually... I, I can't see anybody stopping Nord Stream 2. Uh, but economics, you know, eventually that the, the desire to have product from it goes away. And that's that's how you've got to deal with gas you've got to take away the requirement for it 